Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. O God, we praise Thee and acknowledge Thee to be the Supreme Lord. Everlasting Father, all the earth worships Thee, all the angels, the heavens, and all angelic powers. All the cherubim and seraphim continuously cry to Thee, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of Thy glory. The glorious choir of apostles, the wonderful company of prophets, The white-robed army of martyrs praise Thee. Holy Church throughout the world acknowledges Thee. The Father of infinite majesty, Thy adorable true and only Son. Also, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. O Christ, Thou art the King of glory. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. When Thou tookest it upon Thyself to deliver man, Thou didst not disdain the virgin's womb. Having overcome the sting of death, Thou opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Thou sittest at the right hand of God, in the glory of the Father. We believe that Thou wilt come to be our judge. We therefore beg Thee to help Thy servants, whom Thou hast redeemed with Thy precious blood. Let them be numbered with Thy saints in everlasting glory. Save Thy people, O Lord, and bless Thy inheritance. Govern them and raise them up forever. Every day we thank Thee, and we praise Thy name forever, yes, forever and ever. O Lord, deign to keep us from sin this day. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, for we have hoped in thee. O Lord, in thee I have put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. The following is a reading from Dom Prosper Guernsey's The Liturgical Year. Easter Sunday Heg dies quam feci dominus, exultemus et letemur in ea. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice therein. Morning. The night between Saturday and Sunday has well nigh run its course, and the day dawn is appearing. The mother of sorrows is waiting in courageous hope and patience for the blissful moment for Jesus' return. Magdalene and the other holy women have spent the night in watching and in preparing to start for the sepulchre. In limbo, The soul of our crucified Lord is about to give the glad word of departure to the myriads of the long-imprisoned holy souls who cluster around him in adoring love. Death is still holding his silent sway over the sepulcher which rests the body of Jesus. Since the day when he gained his first victim, Abel, he has swept off countless generations, but never has he held in his grasp a prey so noble as this that now lies in the tomb near Calvary. Never has the terrible sentence of God pronounced against our first parents received such a fulfillment as this. But never has death received such a defeat as the one that is now preparing. It is true the power of God has at times brought back the dead to life. The son of the widow of name and Lazarus were reclaimed from the bondage of this tyrant death. But he regained his sway over them all. But his victim of Calvary is to conquer him forever. For this is he of whom it is written in the prophecy, O death, I will be thy death. O.C. 13.14 Yet a few brief moments, and the battle will be begun, and life shall vanquish death. 
as divine justice could not allow the body that was united to the word to see corruption, and their weight like ours must, for the archangel's word to rise and come to judgment. So neither could it permit the dominion of death to be long over such a victim. Jesus had said to the Jews, A wicked generation seeketh a sign, and a sign shall not be given it, but that of Jonas the prophet. Three days in the tomb, the afternoon and night of Friday, the whole of Saturday, and a few hours of the Sunday, yes, these are enough, enough to satisfy divine justice, enough to certify the death of the crucified and make his triumph glorious, enough to complete the martyrdom of that most loving of mothers, the Queen of Sorrows. No man taketh away my life from me, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Thus spoke our Redeemer to the Jews before his passion. Now is the hour for the fulfillment of his words, and death shall feel their whole force. The day of light, Sunday, has begun, and its early dawn is struggling with the gloom. The soul of Jesus immediately darts from the prison of limbo, followed by the whole multitude of the holy souls that are around him. In the twinkling of an eye, it reaches and enters the sepulchre and reunites itself with that body which, three days before, it had quitted amidst an agony of suffering. The sacred body returns to life, raises itself up, and throws aside the winding sheet and spices in the bands. The bruises have disappeared, the blood has been brought back to the veins, and from these limbs that have been torn by the scourging, from this head that had been mangled by the thorns, from these hands and feet that had been pierced with nails, there darts forth a dazzling light that fills the cave. The holy angels had clustered round the stable and adored the babe of Bethlehem. They are now around the sepulchre, adoring the conqueror of death. They take the shrouds, and reverently folding them up, place them on the slab whereon the body had been laid by Joseph in Nicodemus. But Jesus is not to tarry in the gloomy sepulchre. Quicker than a ray of light through a crystal, he passes through the stone that closes the entrance of the cave. Pilate had ordered his seal to be put upon the stone, and a guard of soldiers is there to see that no one touches it. Untouched it is, and unmoved, and yet Jesus is free. Thus, as the Holy Fathers unanimously teach us, was it at his birth, he appeared to the gaze of Mary without having offered the slightest violence to her maternal womb. The birth and the resurrection, the commencement and the end of Jesus' mission, these two mysteries bear on them the seal of resemblance. In the first, it is a virgin mother. In the last, it is a sealed tomb, giving forth its captive God. And while this Jesus, this man-God, thus breaks the scepter of death, the stillness of the night is undisturbed. His and our victory has cost him no effort. O death, where is now thy kingdom? Sin had made us thy slaves, thy victory was complete, and now, lo, thou thyself art defeated. Jesus, whom thou didst exultingly hold under thy law, has set himself free. And we, after thou hast domineered over us for a time, we too shall be free from thy grasp. The tune thou makest for us will become to us the source of a new life, for he that now conquers thee is the firstborn among the dead." And today is the Pasch, the Passover, the deliverance, for Jesus and for us, his brethren. He has led the way, we shall follow, and the day will come when thou, the enemy that destroyest all things, shalt thyself be destroyed by immortality. Thy defeat dates 
from this moment of Jesus' resurrection. And with the great apostle we say to thee, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? But the sepulchre is not to remain shut. It must be thrown open and testify to men that he whose lifeless body lays there is indeed risen from the dead. As when our Jesus expired upon the cross, so now immediately after his resurrection an earthquake shook the foundations of the world. But this time it was for joy. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat upon it. And his countenance was as lightning, and his raiment as snow. And for fear of him, the guards were struck with terror, and fell on the ground as dead men. God has mercy on them. They returned to themselves and quitted the dread sepulchre. They hastened to the city and relate what they have seen. Meanwhile, our risen Jesus, seen by no other mortal eye, has sped to his most holy mother. He is the Son of God. He is the vanquisher of death, but he is likewise the son of Mary. She stood near him to the last, uniting the sacrifice of her mother's heart with that he made upon the cross. It is just, therefore, that she should be the first to partake of the joy of his resurrection. The Gospel does not relate the apparition thus made by Jesus to his mother, whereas all the others are fully described. It is not difficult to assign the reason. The other apparitions were intended as proofs of the resurrection. This to Mary was dictated by the tender love borne to her by her son. Both nature and grace required that his first visit should be to such a mother, and Christian hearts dwell with delight on the meditation of the mystery. There was no need of its being mentioned in the gospel. The tradition of the Holy Fathers beginning with St. Ambrose bears sufficient testimony to it, and even had they been silent, our hearts would have told it to us. And why was it that our Savior rose from the tomb so early on the day he had fixed for his resurrection. It was because his filial love was impatient to satisfy the vehement longings of his dearest and most afflicted mother. Such is the teaching of many pious and learned writers, and who that knows aught of Jesus and Mary could refuse to accept it. But who is there would attempt to describe the joy of such a meeting? Those eyes that had grown dim from wakefulness and tears now flash with delight at beholding the brightness which tells her Jesus is come. He calls her by name, not with the tone of voice which pierced her soul when he addressed her from the cross, but with an accent of joy and love such as a son would take when telling a mother that he had triumphed. The body which three days ago she had seen covered with blood and dead is now radiant with life, beaming with the reflections of divinity. He speaks to her words of tenderest affection. He embraces her. He kisses her. Who, we ask, would dare to describe the scene which the devout Abbot Rupert says so inundated the soul of Mary with joy that it made her forget all the sorrow she had endured? Nor must we suppose that the visit was a short one. In one of the revelations granted to the seraphic St. Teresa, our Lord told her that when he approached to his blessed mother immediately after his resurrection, he found her so overwhelmed with grief that she would soon have died that it was not until several moments had passed that she was able to realize the immense joy of his presence, and that he remained a long time with her in order to console her. This is related in the life of St. Teresa, as written by herself. Let us who love this blessed mother, and have seen her offer up her son on Calvary for our sake, let us affectionately rejoice in the happiness wherewith Jesus now repays her, and let us learn to compassionate her in her dolors. 
This is the first manifestation of our risen Jesus. It is a just reward for the unwavering faith which has dwelt in Mary's soul during these three days, when all but she had lost it. But it is time for him to show himself to others, that so the glory of his resurrection may be made known to the world. His first visit was to her who is dearest to him of all creatures, and who well deserved the favor. Now, in his goodness, he is about to console those devoted women whose grief is perhaps too human, but their love is firm, and neither death nor the tomb have shaken it. Yesterday, when sunset proclaimed to the Jews the end of the great Sabbath and the commencement of the Sunday, Magdalene and her companions went into the city and bought perfumes, wherewith this morning at break of day they purpose embalming the body of their dear master. They have spent a sleepless night. Before the dawn of day, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, are on the road that leads to Calvary, for the sepulchre is there. So intent are they on the one object that it never occurs to them until it is too late to provide for the removing of the heavy stone which closes the sepulchre. There is the seal, too, of which the governor, which must be broken before they can enter. There are the soldiers who are keeping guard, These difficulties are quite overlooked. It is early daybreak when they reach the tomb. The first thing that attracts their attention is that the stone has been removed, so that one can see into the sepulchre. The angel of the Lord, who had received the mission to roll back the stone, is seated on it, as upon a throne. He thus addresses the three holy women, who are speechless from astonishment and fear. Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Then encouraging them to enter the sepulchre, he adds, Behold, the place where they laid him. These words should fill them with joy, but no, their faith is weak, and as the evangelist says, a trembling and fear sees them. The dear remains they are in search of are gone. The angel tells them so. His saying that Jesus is risen fails to awaken their faith in his resurrection. They had hoped to find the body. While in the sepulchre, two other angels appear to them, and the place is filled with light. St. Luke tells us that Magdalene and her companions bowed down their heads, for they were overpowered with fear and disappointment. Then the angel said to them, Why seek ye the living with the dead? Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? These words make some impression upon the holy women, and they begin to remember something of what our Lord had said of his resurrection. Go, said one of the angels, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. The three women leave the sepulchre and return with haste to the city. They are full of fear, and yet there is an irresistible feeling of joy mingled with their fear. They relate what they have seen. They have seen angels in the sepulchre open, and Jesus' body was not there. All three agree in their account, but the apostles, as the evangelist tells us, set it down to womanish excitement. Their words seem idle tales, and they believe them not. The resurrection of which their divine master had so clearly and so often spoken never once crosses their mind. It is particularly to Peter and John that Magdalene relates the wonderful things she has seen and heard, but her own faith is still so weak. She went with the intention of embalming the body of Jesus, and she found it not. She can speak of nothing but her disappointment. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, 
and we know not where they have laid him. Peter and John determined to go themselves to the sepulchre. They enter. They see the linen cloths lying upon the slab whereupon the body of Jesus had been placed. But the angels, who are now keeping guard in the holy cave, appear not to them. St. John tells us that this was the moment he received the faith in the resurrection. He believes. We are now merely giving the history of the events of this greatest of days in the order in which they occurred. We will afterwards meditate upon them more leisurely when the Holy Liturgy brings them before us. So far, Jesus has appeared to no one save his Blessed Mother. The holy women have only seen the angels who spoke to them. These heavenly spirits bade them go and announce the resurrection of their Master to the disciples and Peter. They are not told to bear the message to Mary. The reason is obvious. Jesus has already appeared to his mother and is with her while all these events are happening. The sun is now shedding his beams upon the earth, and the hours of the grand morning are speeding onwards. The man-god is about to proclaim the triumph he has won for us over death. Let us reverently follow him in each of these manifestations and attentively study the lessons they teach us. As soon as Peter and John have returned, Magdalene hastens once more to the tomb of her dear master. A soul like hers, ever earnest and now tormented with anxiety, cannot endure to rest. Where is the body of Jesus, perhaps being insulted by his enemies? Having reached the door of the sepulchre, she bursts into tears. Looking in, she sees two angels seated at either end of the slab on which her Jesus has been laid. They speak to her, for she knows not what to say. Woman, why weepest thou? Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Without waiting for the angels to reply, she turns as though she would leave the sepulchre, when, lo, she sees a man standing before her, and this man is Jesus. She does not recognize him. She is in search of the dead body of her Lord. She is absorbed in the resolution of giving it a second burial. Her love distracts her, for it is a love that is not guided by faith. Her desire to find him as she thinks him to be blinds her from seeing him as he really is, living and near her. Jesus, with his wanted condescension, speaks to her. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Magdalene recognizes not this voice. Her heart is dulled by an excessive and blind sentiment of grief. Her spirit does not as yet know Jesus. Her eyes are fixed upon him, but her imagination persuades her that this man is the gardener who has care of the ground about the sepulchre. She thinks within herself, this perhaps is he that has taken my Jesus, and thereupon she thus speaks to him, Sir, if thou hast taken him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. How is our loving Redeemer to withstand this? If he praised her for the love she showed him in the Pharisee's house, we may be sure he will now reward this affectionate simplicity. A single word spoken to her with the tone of voice she so well understood is enough. Mary. Master exclaims the delighted and humble Magdalene. All is now clear. She believes. She rushes forward. She would kiss those sacred feet as on the happy day when she received her pardon. But Jesus stays her. This is not the time for such a demonstration of her affection. Magdalene, the first witness of the resurrection, is to be raised in reward of her love to the high honor of publishing the great mystery. It is not fitting that the Blessed Mother should reveal the secret favor she has received from her son. Magdalene is to proclaim 
what she has seen and heard at the sepulchre, and become, as the Holy Fathers express it, the apostle of the very apostles. Jesus says to her, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The second apparition of Jesus, then, is to Mary Magdalene. It is the first in testimony of his resurrection, for the one to his blessed mother was for another object. The Church will bring it before us on the Thursday of this week, and we will then make it the subject of our meditation. At present, let us adore the infinite goodness of our Redeemer, who before seeking to fix the faith of his resurrection in them that are to preach it to all nations, deigns to recompense the love of this woman, who followed him even to the cross, was faithful to him after his death, and loved him most because most forgiven. By thus showing himself to Magdalene, Jesus teaches us that he is more anxious to satisfy the love he bears his faithful creature than to provide for his own glory. Magdalene loses no time in doing her master's bidding. She hastens back to the city, and having come to the disciples, says to them, I have seen the Lord, and these things he said to me. But as yet they have not faith. John alone has received that gift, although he has seen nothing more than the empty sepulcher. Let us remember that after having fled like the rest of the disciples, he followed Jesus to Calvary, was present at his death, and was made the adopted son of Mary. Meanwhile, Magdalene's two companions, Salome and Mary, the mother of James, are following her, though slowly and at some distance, to Jerusalem. Jesus meets them and greets them, saying, All hail! Overcome with the joy, they fall down and adore him and kiss his sacred feet. It is the third apparition, and they that are favored with it are permitted to do what was denied to the more favored and fervent Magdalene. Before the day is over, Jesus will show himself to them whom he has chosen as the heralds of his glory. But he first wishes to honor those generous women who, braving every danger and triumphing over the weakness of their sex, were more faithful to him in his passion than the men he had so highly honored as to make them his apostles. When he was born in the stable at Bethlehem, the first he called to worship him in the crib were some poor shepherds. He sent his angels to invite them to go to him before he sent the star to call the Magi. So now, when he has reached the summit of his glory, put the finish to all his works by the resurrection, and confirmed our faith in his divinity by the most indisputable miracle, he does not begin by instructing and enlightening his apostles, but by instructing, consoling, and most affectionately honoring these humble but courageous women. How admirable are the dispensations of our God! How sweet and yet how strong! Well does he say to us by his prophet, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Let us suppose for a moment that we had been permitted to arrange the order of these two mysteries. We should have summoned the whole world, kings and people, to go and pay homage at the crib. We should have trumpeted to all nations the miracle of miracles, the resurrection of the crucified, the victory over death, the restoration of mankind to immortality. But he who is the power and wisdom of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, has followed a very different plan. When born in Bethlehem, he would have for his first worshippers a few simple-minded shepherds, whose power to herald the great event was confirmed to their own village. And yet, the birthday of this little child is now the era of every civilized nation. For the first witnesses of his resurrection, he chose three weak women. And yet, the whole earth is now, at this very moment, celebrating the anniversary of this resurrection. 
There is in it a mysterious feeling of joy unlike that of any other day throughout the year. No one can resist it, not even the coldest heart. The infidel who scoffs at the believer knows, at least, that this is Easter Sunday. Yea, in the very countries where paganism and idolatry are still rife, there are Christians whose voices unite with ours in singing the glorious Alleluia to our risen Jesus. Let us then cry out as Moses did when the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea and were keeping their first Pasch, Who, O Lord, is like unto thee among the strong? In order to better understand the Holy Liturgy of our Easter, we will again imagine ourselves to be in one of the cathedral churches of the 4th or 5th century, where the sacred rites were carried out in all their magnificence. The city is filled with strangers. The priests of the country churches have come to assist at the consecration of the oils, at the administration of baptism, and at the grand functions of Easter. The inhabitants are not allowed to undertake any journey that would prevent them from assisting at the offices of the church. For we find several councils forbidding each the nobles to go beyond the city walls until the paschal solemnity is over. We shall not be surprised at these regulations if we remember that we have already stated with regard to Palm Sunday how the monks of the East, who had obtained permission from their abbots to leave their monasteries at the beginning of Lent and retire into the desert, there to live with God alone, were obliged to return to the, for the celebration of Easter. St. Pacomios, who was the first to organize in the desert of the East a congregation or confederation of all the houses that had sprung from his celebrated monastery of Tabena, insisted upon all his disciples convening every year in the central monastery for the purpose of celebrating the resurrection. On some of these occasions, there were to be seen encamped around Tabena as many as 50,000 monks. Even now, notwithstanding all the deplorable injuries done to the spirit of Christianity by heresy, our churches are crowded on the great paschal solemnity. Even they that never think of entering the house of God on any other day of the year make an exception for Easter Sunday, as though they could not resist the power of the great mystery of Jesus' triumph. It is the last remnant of faith left in these men. It keeps them from total forgetfulness of their religion. When their last hour comes, their celebration of Easter, though so imperfect, may draw down upon them the mercy of their Savior. But if their Easters have been but so many neglects of the sacraments, what consolation, what hope can they yield? Those slighted invitations to mercy will then cry out for vengeance and give to the resurrection the awful triumph of justice. But these are thoughts far too sad for our festivity. Let us turn them into a prayer to our risen Jesus, that he break not the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax. Let us delight in the thought of those bright days of the past, when faith made Easter so glorious a sight for heaven and earth. Let us exult in the reflection that the same faith is still that of millions, and will be so till the end of time. And before going to Mass, let us aid our enthusiasm by remembrance of the martyrs of Easter. Yes, the grand solemnity was once consecrated by the blood of saints, and the Church chronicles the event in her martyrology. In the year 459, Easter Sunday fell upon April 5th. The Church in Africa was then suffering persecution from the Vandals. They were Arians and had been brought into the country by the, their king, Genesaric and Huneric. The Catholics of the city of Regia were assembled in the Church for the celebration of the Resurrection and in order to keep out the heretics, 
they had closed the doors. The Aryans, marshaled by one of their priests, forced an entrance and rushed in, brandishing their swords. At the very moment a lector was in the ambo singing the Alleluia, an arrow shot by one of the barbarians pierced his throat. He fell and finished his song in heaven. The vandals fell upon the faithful, and the church streamed with blood. They dragged others from the holy place and executed them by order of their king. The little children were the only ones spared. Let us unite with the church who honors these noble victims of Easter on April 5th. Mass. It is the hour of terse, nine o'clock, and the basilica is crowded with the faithful. The sun is pouring in its brightest beams, and who has not felt the charm of an Easter sun? The pavement is strewn with flowers. Above the glittering mosaics of the apse, the wall is covered with rich tapestry. Festoons hang from the sanctuary arch to the pillars of the nave and the aisles. Lamps fed with the purest oil and suspended from the ciborium, or canopy, are burning around the altar. The paschal candle, which has been ceaselessly burning since last night, stands on its marble pillar. Its bright flame attracts every eye, and the perfumes wherewith its wick is saturated fill the sacred edifice with a delicious fragrance. It is the noble symbol of Jesus, our light, and seems to say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. But by far the most interesting object is the group of the neophytes clad in their white garments, like the angels that appeared at the sepulchre. They are the living expression of the mystery of our Lord's resurrection. Yesterday they were dead by sin. Now they are living by that new life, which is the fruit of Jesus' victory over death. O happy thought of our mother, the church, to choose for the day of their regeneration that on which the man-god won immortality for us, his creatures. The station at Rome was formerly in the Basilica of St. Mary Major, the principal church of all those that are dedicated to the Mother of God in the Holy City. Was it not just to associate with the Paschal Solemnity the memory of her who, more than all other creatures, had merited its joys, not only because of the exceptional share she had in all the sufferings of Jesus, but also because of the unshaken faith wherewith during those long and cruel hours of his lying in the tomb she had awaited his resurrection. But now the Papal Mass is celebrated in St. Peter's as being more convenient by its size and situation to the immense concourse of the faithful who flock to Rome from every part of the Christian world for the Feast of Easter. The Roman Missal, however, still gives St. Mary Major as the stational church of today and the indulgences are gained as formerly by those who assist at the services celebrated there. There is no water blessed for the aspersions today, as is the custom on all other Sundays throughout the year. We assisted a few hours ago at the imposing ceremony of the blessing of the water which was to be used for the baptism of the catechumens. The water which is now going to be sprinkled upon the faithful was taken from the font of regeneration. During this ceremony, the choir sings the following antiphon. Vidi aquam egredientem de templo a latere dextro alleluia, et omnes ad quos pervenit aqua ista, salvi facti sunt, et dicent alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. I saw water flowing from the right side of the temple, alleluia, and all to whom that water came were saved, and they shall say, alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia. Confite mini domino, quoniam bonus, quoniam 
in seculum misericordia eus. Praise the Lord because he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Gloria Patria et Filio, et Spiritui Sancto, Sicuder in principio, et nunc et semper, et in secula seculorum. Amen. Vidi aquam egredientem de templo, a latere dextro, alleluia. Et omnes ad quos pervenit aqua ista, salvi facti sunt, et dicent, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Ostende nobis domine, misericordiam tuam, alleluia. Show us, O Lord, thy mercy, alleluia. Et salutare tuum da nobis, alleluia, and grant us thy salvation, alleluia. Oremus, graciously hear us, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, eternal God, and vouchsafe to send thy holy angel from heaven, who may keep, cherish, protect, visit, and defend all who are assembled in this place, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In many of the Western churches, the following stanza is written by St. Venatius Fernatus, Bishop of Poitiers, used formerly to be sung during the procession before today's Mass. We insert them here, feeling assured that they will interest our readers and assist them to enter more fully into the spirit of that great solemnity for which our forefathers made them serve as a preparation. We shall find them replete with the same enthusiasm that inspired the author when he composed the Vexilla Regis, and the hymn of the Holy Chrism. There is the same bold and energetic, almost harsh diction, the same piety, the same richness of poetry and sentiment. The beautiful chant to which this hymn was sung is still extant. Save festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. Hail thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. Lo, our earth is in her spring, bearing thus her witness that, with her Lord, she has all her gifts restored. Salve Vesta dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit, et astra tenet. Hail, thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. For now the woods, with their leaves in the meadows, with their flowers pay homage to Jesus' triumph over the gloomy tomb. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. Hail thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. Light, firmament, fields, and sea, give justly praise to the God that defeats the laws of death and rises above the stars. Salve festa dies, Toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit, et astra tenet. Hail thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered, and heaven is won by Christ. The crucified God now reigns over all things, and every creature to its creator tells a prayer. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit, et astra tenet. Hail thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. O Jesus, Savior of the world, loving Creator and Redeemer, only begotten Son of God the Father, Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. Hail the festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. 
Seeing the human race was sunk in misery deep, thou wast made man, that thou mightest rescue men. Salva festa dies, toto venerabili sebo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. Hail thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. Nor wouldst thou be content to be born, but being born in the flesh, in the same wouldst thou suffer death. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. Hell, thou festive ever venerable day, whereon hell is conquered and heaven is won by Christ. Thou, the author of life and all creation, was buried in the tomb, treading the path of death to give us salvation. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit et astra tenet. The gloomful bonds of hell were broken, the abyss shook with fear, as the light shone upon its brink. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit et astra tenet. The brightness of Christ put darkness to flight and made to fall the thick veils of everlasting night. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. But redeem thy promise, I beseech thee, merciful King. This is the third day. Arise, my buried Jesus. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit et astra tenet. Tis not meet that thy body lie in the lowly tomb, or that a sepulchral stone should keep imprisoned the ransom of the world. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit et astra tenet. Throw off thy shrouds, I pray thee, Leave thy winding sheet in the tomb. Thou art our all, and all else without thee is nothing. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit, et astra tenet. Set free the spirits that are shackled in limbo's prison. Raise up all fallen things. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit, et astra tenet. Show us once more thy face, that all ages may see thy light. Bring back the day which fled when thou didst die. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vicit, et astra tenet. But thou hast done all this, O loving conqueror, by returning to the world, death lies defeated, and its rights are gone. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, Qua Deus infernum vincit, et astra tenet. The greedy monster, whose huge throat had swallowed all mankind, is now thy prey, O God. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit, et astra tenet. The savage beast, now trembling, vomits forth the victims he hath made, and the lamb tears the sheep from the jaw of the wolf. Salve festa dies, Toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. O King divine, lo, here a bright ray of thy triumph, the souls made pure by the holy font. Salve festa dies, toto venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenet. The white-robed troop comes from the limpid waters, and the old iniquity is cleansed in the new stream.
Salve festa dies, tota venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenent. The white garments symbolize unspotted souls, and the shepherd rejoices in his snow-like flock. Salve festa dies, tota venerabilis evo, qua Deus infernum vincit et astra tenent. The preparations completed, the cantors intoned the majestic melody of the introit. Meanwhile, the pontiff, accompanied by the priests, deacons, and other ministers, advances in procession to the altar steps. This opening chant is the cry of the man-god as he rises from the tomb. It is the hymn of Jesus' gratitude to his eternal Father. Resurrexi et adhuc tecum sum, alleluia. Posuisti super me, manum tuam, alleluia. Mirabilis facta est, Scientia tua, alleluia, alleluia. I have risen and am as yet with thee, alleluia. Thou hast stretched forth thy hand to me, alleluia. Thy knowledge is become wonderful, alleluia, alleluia. Domine probasti me, et cognovisti me. Tu cognovisti sessionem meam et resurrectionem meam. Lord, thou hast tried me and known me. Thou hast known my sitting down and my uprising. Gloria Patria Filio, et Spiritui Sancto, Sicuter in Principio, et Nunc et Semper, et in Secula Seculorum. Amen. Resurrexi et adhuc, tecum sum, Alleluia. Posuisti super me manum tuam, Alleluia. Mirabilis facta est scientia tua, Alleluia, Alleluia. In the collect, the Church proclaims the grace of immortality, which our Redeemer's victory over death restored to mankind. She prays that her children may desire the glorious destiny thus won for them. O God, who on this day, by thy only begotten Son's victory over death, didst open for us a passage to eternity, grant that our prayers, which thy preventing grace inspireth, may by thy help become effectual through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Lesson of the Epistle of St. Paul, the Apostle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Brethren, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new paste, as you are unleavened. For Christ our Pasch is sacrificed. Therefore let us feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. God commanded the Israelites to use unleavened bread when they ate the paschal lamb, hereby teaching them that, before partaking of this mysterious food, they should abandon their sins, which are signified by leaven. We Christians, who are called to the new life which Jesus has created for us by his resurrection, must henceforth be intent on good works, as the unleavened bread wherewith we must receive the paschal lamb, our Easter banquet. The gradual is formed of those joyous words which the Church untiringly repeats in all of her offices on this solemnity of the Pasch. They are taken from the 117th Psalm. Joy on such a day as this is a duty incumbent on every Christian, both because of the triumph of our beloved Redeemer and because of the blessings that triumph has won for us. Sadness would be a criminal protestation against the grand things wherewith God has graced us through His Son, who not only died, but also rose from the grave for us. 
Heg dies quam fecit dominus, exultemus et letemur in ea. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice therein. Confite mini domino, quoniam bonus, quoniam in seculum misericordia eus. Praise ye the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. The Alleluia verses express one of the motives we have for rejoicing. A banquet is prepared for us. Jesus is our Lamb. He was slain, now he is living. Slain that we might be redeemed by his blood. Living that we may share his immortality. Alleluia, Alleluia. Pascra nostrum immolatus est Christus. Christ our Pasch is sacrificed. The better to encourage her children to be glad, the church adds to her ordinary chants a hymn full of enthusiastic admiration for her risen Jesus. It is called a sequence because it is a continuation of the Alleluia. Vitime Pascali Laudes Imolent Christiani The Christians offer to the Paschal Lamb the sacrifice of praise. Agnus redemit oves Christus innocens patri Reconciliavit peccatores. The Lamb hath redeemed the sheep, the innocent Jesus hath reconciled sinners to his Father. Mors et vita duelo, conflixere mirando, dux vite mortuus, regnat vivus. Death and life fought against each other, and wondrous was the duel. The King of life was put to death, yet now he lives and reigns. Dic nobis Maria, quid vidisti in via? Sepulchrum Christi viventis, et gloriam vidi resurgentis angelicos testes, sudarium et vestes. Tell us, O Mary, what sawest thou on the way? I saw the sepulchre of the living Christ, I saw the glory of him that had risen. I saw the angels that were with the witnesses, I saw the winding sheet and the cloth. Surexit Christus spes mea, precedet. Vos in Galileam, Christ my hope hath risen, he shall go before you into Galilee. Shimus Christum serexise, a mortuis vere, tu nobis victor rex, miserere, amen, alleluia. We know that Christ hath truly risen from the dead, do thou, O conquering king, have mercy upon us, amen, alleluia. The Church gives her preference today to the evangelist St. Mark, who was a disciple of St. Peter and wrote his gospel at Rome under the eye of this prince of the apostles. It was fitting that on such a festival as Easter we should in some manner hear him speaking to us, whom our divine master appointed to be the rock of his church and the supreme pastor of all, both sheep and lambs. Sequel of the Holy Gospel according to Mark, chapter 16. At that time Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought sweet spices that coming they might anoint Jesus. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they come to the sepulchre, the sun being now risen, and they said one to another, Who shall roll us back the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And looking they saw the stone rolled back, for it was very great. And entering to the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side clothed with white robe, and they were astonished, who saith to them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he told you. He is risen. He is not here. The corpse laid by the hands of them that love their Lord on the slab that lies in the cave is risen. And without removing the stone that closed the entrance has gone forth, quickened with a life which can never die. No man has helped him. No prophet has stood over the dead body, bidding it return to life. It is Jesus himself, and by his own power, that has risen. He suffered death, not from necessity, but because he so willed. And again, because he willed, he has delivered himself from its bondage. O Jesus, thou that thus mockest death art the Lord our God. We reverently bend our knee before this empty tomb, which is now forever sacred, because for a few hours it was the place of thy abode. Behold the place where they laid him. Behold the winding sheet and bands which remain to tell the mystery of thy having once been dead. The angel says to the women, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. The recollection makes us weep. Yes, it was but the day before yesterday that his body was carried hither, mangled, wounded, bleeding. Here in this cave from which the angel has now rolled back the stone, in this cave which his presence fills with a more than midday brightness, stood the afflicted mother. It echoed with the sobs of them that were at the burial, John and the two disciples, Magdalene and her companions. The sun sank beneath the horizon, and the first day of Jesus' burial began. But the prophet had said, In the evening weeping shall have place, and in the morning gladness. This glorious happy morning has come, O Jesus, and great indeed is our gladness at seeing that this same sepulchre whether we followed thee with aching hearts, is now but the trophy of thy victory. Thy precious wounds are healed. It was we that caused them. Permit us to kiss them. Thou art now living, more glorious than ever, and immortal. And because we resolved to die to our sins, when thou wast dying in order to expiate them, thou willest that we too should live eternally with thee. That thy victory over death should be ours that death should be for us as it was for thee a mere passage to immortality, and should one day give back uninjured and glorified these bodies which are to be lent for a while to the tomb. Glory then and honor and love be to thee, O Jesus, who disdain not only to die, but to rise again for us. The offertory is composed of the words wherein David foretold that the earth would tremble when the man-god arose. This earth of ours has not only witnessed the grandest manifestations of God's power and goodness, but by the sovereign will of its maker, has been frequently made to share in them by preternatural movements. The earth trembled and was silent when God arose in judgment. Alleluia. The whole assembly of the faithful is about to partake of the paschal banquet. The divine land invites them to it. The altar is laden with the offerings they have presented. The holy church in her secret invokes upon these favored guests the graces which will procure for them the blissful immortality whereof they are about to receive a pledge. Receive, O Lord, we beseech thee, the prayers of thy people, together with the offerings of these hosts, that what is consecrated by these paschal mysteries may, by the help of thy grace, avail us to eternal life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. At the Papal Mass during the Middle Ages, while the pontiff recited the secret, the two youngest 
Cardinal deacons came forward, vested in white dalmatics, and stood at each end of the altar with their faces turned towards the people. They represented the two angels who kept guard over our Savior's tomb and announced to the holy women that he had risen. The two deacons remained in that position until the pontiff left the altar at the Agnus Dei in order to receive the Holy Communion on the throne. Another impressive custom was observed at St. Mary Major's when the Pope, after breaking the host, addressed to the faithful the wish of peace with the usual greeting, Pax Domini Sit Semper Vobiscum. The choir did not answer the usual, Et Cum Spiritu Tuo. It was the tradition that St. Gregory the Great was once officiating in this church on Easter Sunday, when having sung these words, which bring down the spirit of peace on the assembled people, a choir of angels responded with such sweet melody that the singers of earth were silent, and they feared to join in the celestial music. The year following, the cantors awaited the angelic response to the words of the pontiff. The favor, however, was never renewed, but the custom of not answering the etum spiritu tuo was observed for several centuries. The moment has at length come for the faithful to partake of the divine banquet. It was the practice of the ancient church of Gaul to chant the following psalm appeal to the people who were about to receive the bread of life. The music which accompanied the antiphon is most impressive and appropriate. We give the words as they will assist the devotion of the faithful. Come, O you people, to the sacred and immortal mystery. Come and receive the sacred libation. Let us approach with fear and faith and hands undefiled. Let us unite ourselves with him who is the reward of our repentance, for it is for us that the Lamb of God, the Father, offered himself in sacrifice. Let us adore him alone and glorify him, singing with the angels, Alleluia. While the sacred ministers are distributing the divine food, the church celebrates in her communion anthem the true Paschal Lamb, which has been mystically immolated on the altar and requires from them who receive it that purity of soul which is signified by the unleavened bread under whose accidents the reality lies hid. Communion Christ our Pasch is immolated. Alleluia. Therefore let us feast on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Alleluia. 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 The last prayer made by the Church for them that have received their God is that the spirit of fraternal charity, which is the spirit of our Pasch, may abide in them. The Son of God, by assuming our nature in the mystery of the Incarnation, has made us to be his brothers. By shedding his blood for us upon the cross, he has united us to one another by the bond of redemption, and by his resurrection he has linked us together in one glorious immortality. Pour forth on us, O Lord, the spirit of thy love, that those whom thou hast filled with the Paschal Sacrament may by thy goodness live in perfect concord. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The pontiff then gives his blessing to the people. They leave the house of God to return thither for the Vespers, which most solemn office will conclude the magnificent functions of our solemnity. At Rome, the Pope descends from the throne, wearing his triple crown. He ascends the sedia gestatoria, which is borne on the shoulders of the servants of the palace and is carried to the great nave. Having reached the appointed place, he descends and humbly kneels down. Then from the tribune of the cupola are shown by the priests vested in their stoles the wood of the true cross in the veil called the Veronica, on which is impressed the face of our Redeemer. This commemoration of the sufferings and humiliations of the man-god at the very moment when his triumph over death 
has been celebrated with all the pomp of the liturgy, eloquently proclaims the glory and power of our risen Jesus and shows us how faithfully and how lovingly he fulfilled the mission he had so graciously taken upon himself of working our salvation. It was on this very day that he himself said to the disciples of Emmaus, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise again from the dead the third day. The Christian world, in the person of its supreme pastor, hereby pays its homage to the sufferings and glory of its Redeemer. The pontiff then resumed the triple crown and is carried on the sedia to the balcony where he gives the papal benediction to the people assembled in the piazza of St. Peter's. We have already described the psalm rite. Formerly, when the Lateran Palace was the papal residence and the station of Easter Sunday was held at St. Mary Major's, the sovereign pontiff vested in a cope and wearing the tiara went to the basilica on a horse comparisoned in white. After the Mass, he proceeded to the banquet hall called the Triclinium Leonium. It was built by St. Leo III and was decorated with mosaics representing Christ, St. Peter, Constantine, and Charlemagne. A repast was prepared to which were invited as guests of the pontiff, five cardinals, five deacons, and the first indignity of the clergy attached to the Church of St. John Lateran. Near to the Pope's own table, a seat was prepared for twelfth guest, the prior, called Basilicarius. The paschal lamb was then served up, laid on a rich dish. The Pope blessed it, and thus signified that the severe law of abstinence was at an end. He himself cut it into portions and sent one to each of his guests, but first of all he cut off a small piece and gave it to the Basilicarius, saying to him that what would have seemed a harsh allusion but for the words that followed, What thou hast to do, do quickly. But what was said as a condemnation, I say to thee as a pardon. The repast began with joyous conversation, but after some time the archdeacon gave a signal and a deacon began to read. The papal choristers were afterwards introduced and sang such of the favorite sequence as the Pope called for. This done, the choristers kissed the feet of the pontiff, who gave to each of them a cupful of wine from his own table, and each received a piece of money called a basant from the treasurer. Our object in mentoring such customs is to show our readers the simple manners of the Middle Ages. The customs of blessing and eating lamb on Easter Sunday still continues, though in many instances it conveys very little meaning. For those who, from idle pretexts, have scarcely observed a day of abstinence during the whole of Lent, the Paschal Lamb is a reproach rather than a consolation. We here give the blessing as a completion to our Easter rites. The venerable prayer used by the Church will take us back in thought to other ages as prompt us to ask of God that he will grant us a return to that simple and practical faith which gave such soul and grandeur to the everyday life of our Catholic forefathers. O God, who on the deliverance of thy people from Egypt discommand by thy servant Moses that a lamb should be slain as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, and disordain that both side posts of the houses should be sprinkled with its blood. Vouchsafe also to bless and sanctify this creature of flesh, which we thy servants desire to eat for thy glory, and in honor of the resurrection of the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee forever and ever. Amen. The law of Lent formerly forbade not only flesh meat but also eggs. It was only by a dispensation that they were allowed to be eaten during that holy season of penance. The churches of the East have strictly maintained 
the ancient discipline on this point, and no dispensation is admitted. Here again the faithful show their joy by asking the church to bless the eggs that are to appear at their Easter repast. The following is the prayer used for this blessing. We beseech thee, O Lord, to give the favor of thy blessing to these eggs, that so they may be a wholesome food to thy faithful, who gratefully take them in honor of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee forever and ever. Amen. Yes, let our Easter repast, blessed as it is by our mother, the Church, be one of joy, and add to gladness of this great day. The feasts of religion should be always kept as feasts by Christian families, but there is not one throughout the year that can be compared to this of Easter, which we have waited for so long and in such sorrow, and which has at length come, bringing with it the riches of God's pardon and the hope of our immortality. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,
Yes, sir. 